tell me about yourself. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> in the book, there's a, there's a line that's like, uh, the hardest thing for someone with a portfolio life is to describe themselves. Yes. Although so. I, I do say in the footnote, maybe that's the second scariest thing you can say to someone. The first scariest is I'm from the IRS and you did your taxes wrong. <laughs> <laughs> hey, friend, it's David Nabinsky here in Brooklyn. Here at the Portfolio Career Podcast, we help you take ownership of your portfolio career and design the life that you want to live. Today's conversation is with Christina Wallace. Uh, this episode is a special one for me. In 2017, Christina wrote an article in Forbes titled, Why Everyone Should Consider Building a Portfolio Career. This article was really influential for me when I was starting the podcast in 2018. In late 2018, we actually recorded a podcast together for episode 24. Um, and then now fast forward to the spring of 2023, and she has published a brand new book called The Portfolio Life. In this in-person episode in New York, we talked about portfolio life versus portfolio careers, the 85% rule, writing the book, happiness, and so much more. As always, this episode with Timestamp Notes is available on my website at PortfolioCareerPodcast.com. There, you can also subscribe to my newsletter, my Substack called Portfolio Career. You can also take my free podcasting course as well. So excited for you to build and grow your portfolio career. Here we go with Christina. Let's just dive right in on a hot take. Portfolio life or portfolio careers? Like, I mean, I I feel like I need to just like call this out. And call, be like, call a spade a spade. Yeah. So, so I started this with a portfolio career framework for sure. And that's how we first connected years ago. But I started to realize that part of what made my life tick, what part of the zigzag that has made my portfolio career possible was that I was thinking about it in the broader context of my life. Mm. And in particular for this chapter of the life that I'm in, I had to dramatically rebalance my portfolio because of the other elements of my life. I have two young children. I just moved to to Boston where I'm now full-time on the faculty at Harvard Business School. And so it's it's impossible. Like work-life balance doesn't exist because work is in the context of life. And so that is why I wanted to expand, expand. Okay. to okay. the portfolio life, but I still recognize <laughs> portfolio career subset of. <laughs> Phew. Okay, I guess we can, can we can continue. I didn't yes. know if you're going to be like, look, look, I'm not I'm not portfolio careers anymore. I'm portfolio life. Like this is just <laughs> I don't believe in your show. I don't I'm believe in throw yet. my microphone down and walk out. <laughs> um Okay, so then um Tell me about yourself. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> in the book, there's a there's a line that's like, uh, the hardest thing for someone with a portfolio life is to describe themselves. Yes. Although so. I, I do say in the footnote, maybe that's the second scariest thing you can say to someone. The first scariest is I'm from the IRS and you did your taxes wrong. <laughs> and having my book come out literally on tax day, I feel like people um, might appreciate that joke more now. Um, yeah. So the tell me about yourself is a scary freaking question. It's scary for anyone, right? Like everyone yeah. always freezes in that moment, unless you are like media trained to an inch of your life, because there's always that element of like, well, who are you? And under what circumstances are you interested in me? And like, mm -hmm. should I tell you my, my career? Should I tell you that I like dogs? Should I tell you that I'm single? Like yeah. what exactly are you yeah. getting at here? But I think in the U S we default to talking about our careers. That's mm. sort of how we identify. And, um, and so the challenge for anyone with a portfolio career slash life is you're kind of like, well, I do a lot of things. So 
either I recite everything that I'm currently doing and I come off as like this total dilettante who yeah. can't commit, or I just tell you like one piece of it and then you're like, okay, th- like that seems very one dimensional and not that interesting. And like, you don't stand out against anyone else. And so I really struggled with this for a long time. And then I had this forcing function. I had my first startup right after business school and I was going to all these pitch events and you have 30 seconds Mm. to get an investor's attention before they turn to someone else. And so it was almost like like speed dating for having to learn how to talk about myself. Uh, And I got to try out a whole bunch of different lines and none of them worked until one day I was, I was a little tipsy, I will admit to this. One day I was just like, you know what? I'm a human Venn diagram. And they're like, oh, that's interesting. Interdisciplinary, tell me more. And I was like, oh, okay. Set theory resonates with this crowd. Uh, And so have kind of just leaned into that ever since. Mm -hmm. I, I describe myself now as a human Venn diagram who's built a career at the intersection of business technology and the arts. And what I love about that description, in addition to it, like kind of making everyone giggle a little, the thought of me being a diagram, um, is that it's not tied to any specific job. So my LinkedIn title can change, my whatever, Twitter bio can change, but I am still who I am. I'm I'm not changing how I show up every two to three years as maybe my paid representation of my labor changes. Yeah. Um, speaking of labor, kind of hinted at the, the portfolio life book that Mm -hmm. recently came out. I'm curious, like what has surprised you literally in the last 24 hours? Like you've probably (laughs) been thinking about this book launch day for so long and it happened yesterday. Yes. (laughs) So what, what has surprised you in the last 24 hours? Surprise slash reassuring so far is that at least the haters have not found my inbox. There might be haters, but they were not the pre-orderers who read it within 24 hours of getting it. So maybe I can caveat this a little. But so far, the, the response has been really enthusiastic. And in particular, I think there was there's a piece of me and there's always this question that comes up in interviews is like, well, is this just for Gen Z? Mm. Or like maybe millennials? Like this is a younger person thing. And I've been delighted to see Gen X boomers really attached to this idea. And I find that question so funny because I think the people who best live these portfolio lives in, in the current, uh, sort of existence are like executives who have reached Mm. the pinnacle and can get a board seat and write a book and have a speaking career and do six or seven things. Right. We expect that at that stage. I think the difference is now we're seeing younger folks in their twenties and thirties say, no, I want that from the beginning. Um, and so that's been really exciting to see how it has resonated and sometimes in very different ways, but across the generational spectrum at different points of transition for a lot of different readers. And still they're finding value in the framework and the tools and the permission that it grants them. Mm. Um, can imagine you're tired but um, I also I have uh, to I have to interject though I am slash my children are with my in-laws this week mm. and I this is the first time I've been away from my children basically since they were born for more than 24 hours I cannot believe 
how much I can get done <laughs> in a day. I can get ready. I can go from bed to out the door in like 22 minutes. I could never pull that off when I was childless and, and pre-married. Like, oh my gosh, I'm so efficient. I am so capable. And now I'm like, oh, this is what my capacity was like mm. if I didn't have a one-year-old and a three-year-old. So like I am tired, but also I slept through the night last night. <laughs> um, would you say you're happy? Very happy. Ecstatically happy. This is, I'm, I'm about to turn 40 later this year, which is like a weird thing to even say out loud. Cause that in my head, 40 is like the point where you actually are finally a grown up, and I still don't feel like one, but I, I have these very cheesy moments where I just kind of burst into tears because I have somehow pulled off. Exa- I'm going to do it right now in this room. The exactly the life that I dreamed of when I was growing up. Like I, I have a family, I am thriving, I have friends, I have enough money to sneak a candy bar every now and then and no one notices, right? Like <laughs> the, the, the crazy freedoms you dream of when you're 13. Um, I am just absolutely blissfully happy. And, um, and I, I couldn't imagine that when I was a teenager. So mm. it's, it feels really good to have made it to this point. Mm. Cue the Kleenex. <laughs> <laughs> well, shit, that's pretty amazing. Um, and the reason why I asked that question, not was to, not to, I wasn't expecting to go this, this, <laughs> this direction, but I was in your uh, personal balanced scorecard. Yes. The last the last uh, question. The last question is, are you happy? Yeah. So I, I took this balance scorecard. It's a super wonky tool that the world of business uses to kind of manage all the different strategic priorities for the company and all these things. But I, I took this tool and I adapted it for my own life back in, I think like 2016 for the first time, um, because it allowed me to put all of the things I cared about all on one page. Cause I realized, and I, I had, been told this, I taught this all the way through business school. Like what you, what you measure is what you manage. Mm. And if all you are measuring is success according to promotions and job satisfaction and ladder climbing and all these things, you're going to forget about all these other things. Like, are you healthy? Do you have friends? Are you investing time in your partner? All the other pieces that make up a life. And so I, I created this, um, this very wonky scorecard to literally capture all of those things that my career is on there. Absolutely. And it's next to my financial health, my physical health and my personal goals around relationships and friends and my partners and partners, partner singular in my case. Um, and so, and then I set over the course of all these different categories, I set different kind of targets for the year, things that I said I, I cared about and, and what I was going to do to go toward that growth. But then as I finished the whole thing, I wanted to add, uh, if people who build financial models laugh when I say this, but it's like the checksum uh, uh, thing. When yeah. you're building a, a yeah. financial model, you, you sort of build in these, these little uh, cells just to make sure that everything adds up to like 100% or everything balances yep. you know, on, on the sides of the, the balance sheet. And so for me, are you happy was a little bit like that checksum question of, okay, so you're achieving all the things you said, but if that makes you miserable, then like maybe let's go back to the top and start again. And that was my, are you happy? Yes. Okay. 
keep going. And so it sounds like it's changed. What do you think has been, I mean, I know that like, you know, one of the big principles behind the book is constantly rebalancing, et cetera, Mm -hmm. and stuff. But what do you think has been some of the bigger unlocks for going like to being, you know, more happy? Part of it was being willing to clear out my calendar. I, I talk in the book about Marie Kondoing my calendar. I, I have no problem with physical clutter. I've mm. always lived in small spaces. Even now with kids, I'm like, okay, you outgrew it. It's gone. It's out of the apartment the next day. Um, but I have been really bad about my calendar clutter. I'm I'm someone who like, I get in these habits of like, well, of course I'm always going to that workout class. Or of course I've said yes to this community meetup. Or of course I'll take these one-off, yeah. pick my brain, whatever coffee chats that you've now promised my time to someone else over. And, um, and over time, over time that really builds up and it, it, it adds up and it turns into clutter mm. in your day. And you start to realize you don't have the time and the energy for the things that you want because you still have all of this residual clutter from previous chapters of your life. And so part of this work requires going back through and cleaning stuff out, saying no, which is something I really had to practice in private before I could do it in in public. Um, Practice the like, thank you so much for the invitation. I won't be able to join you, Mm. period, end of sentence. I don't need to give you an excuse why. Um, And and having these cycles of like, okay, spring cleaning, let's really reevaluate if what I'm putting my energy against is actually lining up with what I've said are my, my priorities for this season of my life. And, and that's, it's part of the rebalancing, right? It's like right now in this chapter of life I'm in with a book, with a full-time job, with two young kids, one who is constantly sick, thank you, daycare, yeah. uh, and a husband who's got a really big job. I don't have time to sing in a choir right now. Mm. I've been a musician my entire life. I started playing piano when I was four. I picked up cello in middle school. I've been singing my whole life. I've sung all over the world. I made money singing in college. Like this is, this is part of who I am. And for this particular season, I can't commit to an every week, three hours a week rehearsal, plus performance rehearsals, plus all of the, the seasonal things that go along with being part of a really good choir. And so right now that's on the back burner while I sing a lot of Encanto with my three-year-old in the car. Uh, And I just have to know that like, it's going to come back. Mm. It's going to find its way back. But if I try to keep all the things that I like, even when there's no space for it, that's what creates this conflict and this stress rather than the joy that each of those pieces is attempting to bring on its own. Um, and if you want to sing right now, feel free. I mean, <laughs> I feel like after you're like, you know, I've done it now. I just can't, I'm deprived of it. I'm, if only someone would give me a chance. If only, if only one, and like staring at me and I was like, okay. Um. If only I had a microphone. Oh, <laughs> Um, and, and so then connected to this idea, I think is how in the book you really emphasized kind of operating at like 85%. Yes. Yes. So this is, this is the thing that it's like, do as I say, not as I do. I'm, I am very honest that I'm still working on this skill, but, and 
I talk in the last part of the book about how do you actually operationalize yeah. a portfolio because the theory is nice, but like, how do you put it into practice? And each chapter takes the lens of a different skill in the C-suite. And the, the COO chapter yeah. about managing your time draws on research from operations theory and management uh, practices in that world. And one of the big aha moments I had in, in going through that research was finding these top performing manufacturing lines. These are, you know, they've worked out all the kinks there. Everything is automated. Like it's just, it just works. The top performing lines operate at 85% capacity, Mm. not a hundred percent. Certainly not this 110% that we're told to do. Yes. 85% because, because planned downtime is cheaper than unplanned downtime. And what they recognize is you have to have time for maintenance. You have to have time for do-overs. There will be mistakes along the way. You want to have time and potentially for surges. Maybe one of your most mm. important clients shows yeah. up and needs you at the last minute. You want to leave space for that rather than be operating at 100%. And now the surge has to kick someone else out of the lineup or breaks your your labor model or something right so leaving space for for that downtime means that you can budget for it you can plan for it it'll be cheaper it'll be something that you can work around and it means you don't reach these moments of burnout right it's it's you can think about it if you've got a car which i know in new york like very few people attached to this idea but all your listeners outside of new york will understand this you can either get regular oil changes or at some point you can replace your transmission, right? Like mm. pick one. Um, it's up to you how, how this works out. And so your body can either find itself horizontal in your bed by you choosing to rest, <laughs> or you can end up with mono and pneumonia at the same time. I speak from experience. So I love this 85% rule because it's this is where the, the framing of life rather than career really matters, mm. is that everything has to go into that bigger capacity denominator of that calculation. Your commitments to your family, your caregiving, your hobbies, your personal you know, health investments, and your career, all of that together has to add up to no more than 85% so that you're still leaving space in your life. And what I loved, I did this sort of back of the, the envelope calculation and I realized that 85% is basically six-sevenths. So for anyone who observes a Sabbath, anyone who understands this notion of like one seventh of your time mm. should be unallocated, should just be Yeah, off one day a week. Yeah. One day a week. Like this is this backs all of that mm. up, right? You can listen to the Bible, you can listen to like operations management research. At some point you gotta have downtime. Yeah. Okay. Um not during this podcast episode. We're going to keep going. We're not going to take a break. We're going to keep going. Um, we're going to get to 100% of this episode. Um, the As it also relates to this, you know, I think we're kind of still talking about this personal balanced scorecard mm-hmm. um, <clears throat> in happiness and the portfolio life. Talk to me about um, an aha. So talk to me about um, is it Clayton Crich- Christensen. Mm-hmm. Um, what kind of impact has he had in your life? Uh, I mean, this book wouldn't have existed if I had never had him as a professor. He, I had him in my second year of business school um, back in 20, 
2009. Um, and it was for this completely, uh, it's the most ridiculously titled class, Building and Sustaining a Successful Enterprise. Like you would not think this is going to be the most inspirational yeah. course you take at business school. Um, but it was the same semester he was diagnosed with brain cancer. And he shows up to the last day of class and he says, look, I've been you know, teaching you all semester long about how to manage businesses. And I don't want to talk about that today. Today, I want to talk about how you manage your life. Mm. And he brought a lot of himself into that conversation in many ways, thinking it might be his last time teaching. Mm. He ended up recovering from brain cancer. He continued on for another 10 years. He, he had like nine lives. He, he <laughs> kept having other health challenges and he kept surviving them until the day he didn't. It was, it was um, devastating. But uh, he just really changed how I thought about both the effort and the intentionality that I wanted to bring to my life and not just my career. Um, but also the fact that I could use business frameworks and tools to manage my life. I mean, uh, one of the reviews of the book talks about how incredibly wonky it is that I'm bringing in Gantt charts and balanced scorecards. And I'm like, look, I take that as a compliment, first of all. But secondly, like this works for me. If it doesn't work for you, that's cool. Like throw out the Gantt charts. But um, I, I find you know, this is how my brain organizes data. This is how it frames up a problem and tries to put together a way of solving it. And realizing that I could use those same tools for my life gave me both permission, but also a process mm. for, for really being thoughtful about it. And, and he, he said this over and over again. He's like, how will you measure your life, right? What you, what you measure is what you manage. And if you're not going to think about your relationships, your community, your impact, then it's not going to happen, mm. right? How you spend that marginal hour is always going to be dedicated to your career if that's the only thing you're tracking. Mm. So if it hadn't been for him, this book wouldn't have existed. But we, we ended up staying close for another 10 years. His daughter, Kate, was my intern for Quincy Apparel, my very first what? company. Um, and then she ended up being a student years later at Harvard Business School. And, and I told him I was joining the faculty um, right before he passed and we almost got to be colleagues. Um, so that was, uh, that was a little bit bittersweet, but um, he was a huge impact in my life and in, in so many people's lives. And uh, I'm just so grateful that I had that experience and that he ended up documenting that last lecture in his book, How Will You Measure Your Life? Which if you haven't read, put my book down and go get his for a hot second, then come back to my book. What, um, how do you think you are trying to measure your life, I guess? I mean, separate, I mean, there's the scorecard, but is there anything else that's kind of more connected to yeah, I, it, part of this is recognizing, I mean, I, I have a whole bunch of like pie charts in the book yeah. because I love, I love a good graph. Um, but I, I have this pie chart very early on that sort of how we're taught to measure our life is based on, you know, title, prestige, money, all these things. And that I wanted to offer a slightly different framework that it might be around free time and community and relationships and that, which is obviously harder to measure. I can measure dollars in my bank yeah. account. It's very hard to measure am I building a great relationship with my three-year-old, right? Like I, I can't graph that. Um, but part of how I think about measuring my life right now is, am I happy more days than not? That's an easy one. Not every day is amazing, but more days than not, significantly more days than not are. Um, 
do I have, do I feel really grounded and secure and joyful in my relationship with my husband? Do I have the time to be there and be present for my children? Mm. I'm not triple tasking while I'm trying to put them to bed at night. I'm, I'm listening to their mama. Do you want to play with me? Um, I'm watching the ridiculous Sesame street episodes for the 72 second time. And I'm like singing along with those terrible songs too. Um, I, I joke. I love Sesame. There's so many worse <laughs> children's television programs than Sesame street. Um, and you know, do I have time to still feel like me? Mm. So part of writing this book was absolutely so that I could package up these ideas and put them out in the world for other people. But part of writing this book was for me. Say more about that. What is, what is, what is, this what is, does that look like? This is having a regular writing practice, having the deadline of a, of a book that mm. insisted that I carved out time to think through these ideas, having the opportunity to pour through research unrelated to what I'm teaching right now, unrelated to other podcasts I'm going on, like that intellectual curiosity mm. and having a, a project with a, a clear shape around it mm. created the space for what day in and day out was something I really wanted to do, but probably wouldn't have been able to prioritize without the shape of that project, without the deadline and the forcing function of it. And having something I make, mm. I'm a creator first and foremost, I make before I manage. And as a professor, there's not as much making yeah. involved. I'm, I'm advising, I'm teaching. I love both of those things, but I am not in the arena making in those contexts. And this, this started as a blank, blank screen, you know, like the first words had to be written on this page and you go from there and having that ability to make something out of nothing while I have all these other moving pieces has, has ensured that I still feel like me throughout all of these other changes I'm going through. So now that this is over, I got to figure out what I'm making next. Like, obviously. <laughs> yeah. I also was wondering, I didn't want to say like, so yeah, it's been day one after yep, launch. Yep. How are you rebalancing now? Yep, and you're yep. like, what comes next? Dude, like I literally <laughs> published this book yesterday. Like, yes. don't ask me about how I'm rebalancing. Um, can I just enjoy this moment for a little bit? Um, <laughs> I'm definitely staking out choirs for, for the fall. Oh. I'm like, I've, I've got my short oh. list. Okay, cool. Um, Anything else that you want to share about, like what makes you feel like you? That's a great question. Uh, it has really changed over time. What I think is so interesting, as a human Venn diagram, part of how I recognize me is often what is different from the other person in the room with yeah. me, right? So I go into a room of mathematicians and I'm like, oh, I'm the creative artsy one. I go into a room of artists and I'm like, oh, let me bring out the spreadsheets, right? And so it's like in relationship to something else, it's recognizing like, yes, we have this in common and here's the other parts of me that are different. And so part of what, I, you know, I describe myself as a very strangely shaped puzzle piece. And I, I love that description. I embrace that because part of what makes me feel like me, to be honest, is being a little bit weird, a little bit mm. lopsided, a little bit like not fitting in. And so in whatever room I'm in, there are always things that I love doing that do fit in, that are part of that community. 
I teach in a professor job. Obviously, that makes sense. But part of what makes me feel like me is like, okay, well, what's that other thing that's out of left field? Mm. Do you still have that in play? And are you only fitting in right now? Or are you making sure to keep that other thing that sort of juts, you know, juts out at a 47 degree angle still exists? So one of the other big things I'm doing right now that still makes me feel like me, I uh, invested in the latest production of Parade on Broadway. Yep. Um, it's a tiny little check. I'm not anything more than a check, right? I'm not like hands-on producing this thing. But it keeps me in the theater world. It's directed by Michael Arden, who was one of my high school classmates at cool. Interlochen 20-some years ago. Uh, scenic design by Dane Laffrey, also one of my classmates. It keeps me in that world, and it, it keeps the arts in my Venn diagram, even if it's something as silly as writing a tiny little check. <laughs> uh, I don't know if that's um, so silly. Uh, it's, it's important, right? Like to... to I mean, it is, but I feel so ridiculous. One of my friends was like, stop saying you're an investor. You're a producer. And I'm like, I know what goes into being a theater mm. producer. I have been a theater producer. I am not doing any of that hard work. I am just the capital. And I'm okay with that. I'm okay with playing a tiny little supporting role in order to make this art that I think should exist in the world. And part of what that keeps for me is that not just knowing I supported it, but also, I keep one foot in the game. So the next thing that Michael works on, the next thing that these producers mm. work on, I'm on the short list. And maybe next time my check is a little bit bigger. And maybe the time after that, I start bundling other investors with me. And you know, one day you wake up and you find out that I'm a Tony-nominated yeah. producer, right? So, so that's what I mean by portfolio. Right now, this isn't paid work. This is not even a meaningful part of what I do day in and day out but it's still something that is part of my life and it keeps one foot in the door. Mm, love that, love that. Um, the, and, and speaking of like investing, mm -hmm. um, people that have, or companies that have businesses mm -hmm. sometimes have investors. Mm -hmm. um, in the book, I thought that you really framed up a really cool idea, uh, which is around like the business model of your life. Mm -hmm. um, I think I kind of connected those ideas. <laughs> I was, that's what I'm trying to get to like, is business model. Where is this segue going? Okay. Okay. Business model for your life. Excellent. Yeah, now yeah, it's clear yeah. now. So <laughs> um, talk to us about that idea and um, what it kind of looks like. Yeah. So this is a huge unlock that came for me at business school. I did not come from a, a family that understood business, entrepreneurship, anything. And even when I showed up, people kept using this phrase business model. And I was like, what the business model. Um, so, so this is where I finally put the pieces together. Our business model is simply a framework for saying, what value are you delivering? How are you delivering it? Who is your audience slash customer slash person who needs that value? And then what is the monetary exchange that makes the whole thing work? And is that money more than your expenses, less than your expenses, break even on your, right? Like, is it a profitable effort? Yeah. Is it not? Whatever. And what I think is really interesting about that is I give an example that like what, what skills you bring or what kind of work you like to do day in and day out could 
show up in very different ways depending on the business model for your life. So you could say, uh, I have a full-time job where, you know, it provides me with a salary and some health insurance, predictable hours. Um, it doesn't expect me to be on outside of work hours, you know, nice and, and, uh, a good enough job. And it doesn't fulfill me in any other way, (laughs) but it gives me those things. But what, what does fulfill me is the moonlighting work I do with my band or making pottery or starting this cake decorating business. None of those things are profitable. (laughs) So they need to be subsidized Mm. by something that is profitable. But, and the good enough job has, has great boundaries around it because it's not asking you for your time or your energy or your mental capacity outside of the hours you've promised it. So it gives you the space, it gives you the funding, and it, you know, it gives you the ability to pursue these other things that are not profitable on their own. That's one business model that you could put around your portfolio. There's another one more, I call it zigzagging, which it really often grows out of the moonlighting where mm. you were all in on this one thing. And then the next thing you know, you've changed your LinkedIn and now you are doing this entirely different thing. And on the surface, people are like, what the what? Like, what just happened here? You were a middle school you know, science teacher. Now you're an OBGYN. Like, what did I miss? Um, that's a real example from the book, my best friend, Kat Jennings. Uh, and so part of this is, you know, you you have your, your day job, you've got your moonlighting thing, and you start de-risking this. You start running experiments. You get more information. Maybe you start charging a little bit more yeah. for those cakes or building a little bit more of that presence or really understanding, no, this is the direction I want to go in. And then as you are ready, you dial down that day job, and you go all in on this moonlighting and make that your new effort. And so it's it's one way to almost like skate mm. from one thing to another or zigzag, but in a way that's not just, well, I'm just going to quit everything and try. You're like, no, 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 I, I'm going to do more than try. Like I've built this thing and I'm ready to go invest in there. And then the third one, um, I call the multi-hyphenate model. This is where people who have two, three, four income streams because they live in two, three, four multiple worlds at the same time. It's not, I'm this by day and this by night. It's like, no, 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 I am a playwright and a computer programmer. I am both of those things. And what that does, not only does it give you a very interesting day um, and multiple streams of income, but it often sets you up to be at the vanguard Mm. of making the future because you can see the dots of how those worlds connect where people who only live in one or the other don't see it coming. And so I give an example uh, in the book of Kat Mustatia, who was the playwright and the computer programmer and just kind of did them both at the same time. She never really intended to mash them up. She was just like, I love both. I do both. They, they are me. And then got pulled into the Ted fellows program um, at, as doing work around art in the age of AI and what does it mean to be computer generated creativity? And like, is that still art? Does it have meaning? All of these questions that she's uniquely positioned to address because she speaks both worlds fluently. So it's, it's certainly one way you can be thinking about this, but any, any mix of how you put together your portfolio, whether you monetize it or not, whether it's your main thing or your side thing, or you're becoming on-ramp, off-ramp, whatever, it's just to be really open and creative mm. 
about how you put together your needs, my money, my health insurance, stability, community, growth, whatever, and the different irons you might have in the fire as part of your Venn diagram. Like you don't have to start from, can I make enough to pay my rent off of this? Maybe not. Doesn't mean you can't do it. You mm. just got to make sure you can pay your rent some, somewhere else, right? So, so Sustainable, yeah. Exactly. And that's, that is what I really emphasize in this. I want this to feel sustainable, both financially and also from an effort and energy standpoint. This is not about hustle culture and like work all the time. 85%. That's the goal. Six-sevenths. Yes. Um, and there was a line... Um, related to business and related to happiness mm. that really stuck with me. And I'm going to make sure I get it right for a business. It's bottom. The bottom line is profits for our lives. The bottom line is happiness. I mean, it's a completely subjective point of view, <laughs> but I think it's true. I think it's true because you, you know, you read all of these, um, articles and, and interviews and folks with people on their deathbed and it's sort of like, what do you look back on? What do you value? What do you wish you could do again or had more time for? Or do you have regrets? And they're always in the vein of like the relationships that mattered, the impact that they had, the communities that they were a part of. And yes, their work, if their work was a meaningful part of their life. But very few people, I mean, I, I'm watching Succession right now. I have to imagine you are as everyone is. I'm not going to give it away if you haven't stayed up to date with season four, but like there's a meaningful episode in in that you're like, whoa, did not see that coming. Um, And then you have this moment of like, wow, that what a shitty way to go. Mm. And um, all the money in the world can't change the fact that like we're all going to die someday, (laughs) some in more glamorous ways than others. Um, And and so who cares if you fly private? Who cares if you have the townhouse on you know, the Upper East Side? Like, who cares about any of that? Are you happy? Do your kids talk to you? Mm. Do you? Do you have someone who texts back <laughs> when you send a ridiculous TikTok or emoji or, <laughs> or uh, oh my God, my whole world has just ended? <laughs> like, do you? Or do you have to like be Scrooge McDuck swimming in your coins in order to remind yourself of what this was all for? Um, And to kind of start to wrap things up, what do you think is um, one thing that someone could do to, I don't want to say to be more happy, but um, yeah, if someone's like, yeah, I want to emphasize more on happiness compared to profits. Yeah. What do you think is an exercise or a question or, um, yeah. Yeah. So um, the first exercise I, I counsel you to do in the book, and it's the starting place for everyone, is excavating the pieces of yourself that you may have put away over the years in order to look serious, in order to go all in on whatever trajectory that you've been on professionally. Because I look at my kids, I look at before this, I had built a, a startup um, focused on computer science in, at, for high school uh, girls, middle school girls. I got to spend a lot of time with kids before they started thinking about like, what's my college narrative, you know? And they are these fascinating, mm. creative, curious up, yeah. creatures 
who do not think that there is a contradiction mm. in loving science and dance and being interested in, in journalism and playing soccer, right? Like they are all of these things at once. And then we have these moments along the way to adulthood where we're sort of told we need to focus, we need to figure out what is the story, what is the path we're on. And we start carving away these pieces that make us us. And for many of us, I think we get to our 30s or 40s, especially the point where we start having, you know, families or other caregiving responsibilities yeah. that that keep draining our time and our energy and we lose sight of us other than our job, which is a very dangerous way to build an identity because it can be taken away from you. We lose sight of us. And so part of what I would encourage anyone to do is to go back and start excavating what else is in your Venn diagram other than how you get paid today. What other things are you curious about? What other crazy skills were you known for in high school? What, what alternative alter ego lives might you have had if you had picked that different major that you were thinking about? Just, just plot them out and try to see if there are interesting intersections or mm. themes or just something you're like, oh, I haven't thought about that in forever. Just let that breathe a little bit because part of what you might find is like, maybe I should pick up a hobby. <laughs> a hobby? <laughs> a hobby. Maybe, maybe I go take that class. A little structure has never been bad for, you know, podcast, having, yeah. maybe I start that podcast. Maybe I don't know, maybe I like take some stand-up classes. Mm. Like maybe, that's all I'm asking. Find the maybes because there's so much optionality ahead of you. Mm. If you can see yourself greater than the sliver of you that is represented in your job today, but you're not going to see those options until you change the story you tell yourself about yourself. A lot of us think that we don't have choices because other people can't see that in us. And I would argue that it first starts with we don't believe that that's there in ourselves. So re-breathe energy into all these other pieces of you. Find that true narrative. I, sound, I feel like I sound like a therapist now, um, but whatever. Um, this is what I do with my MBA that's students that's all day long. They come to office hours ostensibly to talk about a startup, and then we end up having therapy. Um, Find it's, in those... the di it's in the Venn diagram. You know? <laughs> it it's, is. It's, it's it is. <laughs> Coaching. Um, find those pieces of yourself. Let them, let them become part of you again and, and start changing that story that you tell yourself when you look in the mirror. Okay. Letting that sink in. Um... It helps if you use um, post-it notes. Just get a whole <laughs> stack of post-its. <laughs> I really should have invested in 3M before I wrote this book because, oh my, the sales of post-its are going to go through the roof. <laughs> and uh, speaking of the book, uh, where can people uh, find it and stay in touch with you, Christina? Um, you can find it on all major bookstore retailer websites. You all know which ones I'm talking about. Um, but you can also find it if you want to support your indie bookstore. Not all of them are going to stock it. But if you call them up and ask them to get you a copy, they will absolutely get you a copy and probably a couple more copies for other folks in your area. So highly recommend going that route. You could also ask your library to mm. get a copy and, and 
keep it on hold for other folks who might want to go through it. Um, you can also, if you want to, if you like the sound of my voice, you can listen to the audiobook which I narrated. Uh, that's it. that's a, an option as well. And to keep up in, with me, follow me on LinkedIn. I I gotta tell you, man, in 2023, LinkedIn is where it's at. Mm. It, the nerds have won the social media wars, and it is the only platform I'm really still on in any meaningful way, because everyone is mostly civil, and you can have. It feels like blogging back in like 2006 you can like put a post out in the world and have a real conversation with people in the comments and i'm i'm loving it so come join me on linkedin there it is all right christina (laughs) thank you so much it's kind of surreal i just really appreciate um you know from episode 24 2018 a a forbes article in 2017 about portfolio careers yes now we got the portfolio life book Christina, thank you so much. Full circle. Thank you for being a part of it from the beginning, David. Shit. Thank you so much. Hey, friend. Thank you for tuning in to this special episode of Portfolio Career Podcast. Would love to hear what you learned and what you enjoyed. Um, You can find me on Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, whatever is best for you. And as a reminder, I'm just one email away as well. This episode with timestamp notes is available on my website at PortfolioCareerPodcast.com. There you can subscribe to my newsletter called One Email Away, which includes the best insights from the podcast and friend-sourced opportunities. So excited for you to build and grow your portfolio career. Thank you so much.